In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. So is Joe coming in? Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I have to preface my remarks today by saying I was having lunch with a doctor today. That would be a Ph.D. doctor, a married Ph.D. doctor. And he said, oh, are you giving this talk? I said, yeah, I'm giving this talk. So what are you going to talk about? I said, well, I'm not sure. And I started going on about what I'm going to talk about. And he says, well, hey, wow, wait, really? I did, I just, I mean, I thought I was just promising to be faithful. I mean, I promised all that other stuff, too. I said, yeah, you actually promised all that other stuff, too. He said, oh, I think I have to redo my marriage vows pretty soon, then, because I didn't realize I was the vows contains all that you just said they contained. So I figured it'd be a good idea, then, <laughs> since he's a married guy, and somehow that slipped through the, the cracks, is we're discussing marriage as a spiritual journey. And there's a bunch of different ways that we could attack this thing, but I figured the best way to attack it would be to talk about the first step of the journey. So when you're at the first, where is the first step of the journey? And if you're going on any journey in life, you want to do all your preparation and put water in your canteens and air in your tires and charge yourself and battery, whatever it might be, and money in your wallet and go ahead and go on your journey. If you don't do any of that, then your journey is going to be a very slow one. It's not going to be a very effective one. And the marriage is, in fact, we're going to talk about this. But uh, So I figured I'd start right there from the, from the basics. So if I can borrow Grace for a minute. What we're going to do here is my wife is going to come up here. and She's not my wife yet. She'll be my wife in about 36 words. Stand right here, honey. Thank you very much. Okay, so this is my future wife. And... What I'm going to do is we're just I'm going to speak the vows to her. Now this doesn't count because, well, even if we wanted it to count, it couldn't because I'm a priest. But number two, because she's not going to give them back to me. It's just going to be a one-way thing. <laughs> but what I want to do, what they, the reason I bring her up here is to show that when this journey begins, there is an offer and an acceptance. So by her presence, just standing up here and volunteering for this. <laughs> she is, in fact, offering herself to me. And the way that marriage vows works, at least the first set of marriage vows, is that she gives a silent offer, but I give a verbal acceptance. And my acceptance, and these are, these are the actual vows, is very important because I'm going to accept, and she is going to know what it is that I am accepting. So when two people get married, what happens is the woman generally presents herself first silently. She makes the offer. The man accepts her, and then he silently presents himself, offers himself to the woman, and she accepts him with the same words. Names changed, of course, and husband and wife switched. But other than that, same words are in the vows. So what happens is we're standing here like this, and the priest is over here, and the crowd's out here, and I say, I, Father Guy. Thanks <laughs> 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 grace to be my wife. I promise to be true to you. Good times and bad, for better for worse, in sickness and health, I will honor you and love you all the days of my life. That's what I said. That's good. Now I give her a kiss, but I'm not going to. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get fined. <laughs> okay. So first things first. Thank you, Grace. I may have you back up here, dear. 
Um, first thing that happens is, I say, I take you. All right, so the, this journey, right off the bat, this spiritual journey marriage, is not a solo journey. It's not a solo journey. It's a journey that two people are going to both accept the other one. And they're both going to acknowledge that this isn't a road trip that I'm going on by myself. This is, this is a trip for both of us the whole time. Okay? So I'm going to write this out, but I'm going to write it a little differently. Okay? And I promise to do what? I promise first to be true, then to love, and then to honor. So the promise that is being made after I accept her, I take you, and then I promise to you that I will be true, and I will love you, and I will honor you, and then until when? All the days, right? I'll just put the end. And the when of it in this interim between right now and my death, right here, when is it going to be? It's going to be in sickness, in health, in good times, and in bad. Alright, so in season and out of season. So basically what you're saying when you take these vows, just in a little more objective sense, is that these three things that you're promising are... There's no escaping them. There's no saying, you know what, I need a break from this journey, and we're going to stop the car, and I'm going to go off on that outlook, and you can drive for a couple days, and I'll catch up to you because I'll take a bus later on. It doesn't happen in marriage. There's never. Now, remember, I'm talking objectively living the vows. And objectively living the vows of being true and loving and honoring, there's, it is universal within the marriage. There's never a time when you aren't doing those things, hopefully. Hopefully. We are sinners, of course. But hopefully the idea is that you would be doing these three things at all times within your marriage. So, I want to make do this because I love doing this. We are going to extrapolate these just a little bit. And I want to say, true is an interesting way to put it. I promise to be true to you. So it's not simply just being faithful. We could, the vows could say, I promise to be faithful to you. But they don't say that. They say, I promise to be true to you. And when we speak of truth, we're speaking of the faith. Right? Heck, we can even, because we love doing these kind of things, we can even say we're speaking of the Father, the, the source of all truth. That I promise to be true to you means it's, there's no white lies. There's no infidelity. So it's in between, and every truth in between that. That I will never, for your sake or my sake, be false. This is a great way to start a marriage. That I'm not going to be false or falsify something, even if it's going to make you feel a lot better. That I have to be true. Because if we don't have that complete truth in our Relationship, then we are not going to be journeying anywhere. We're not going to be getting anywhere. So that's the first thing. And really, the faith is, you know, we're going to do, obviously, this is going to be faith, and it's going to be hope, and this is going to be love, charity here. We're going to get the three theological virtues in, and we'll probably get the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in before it's all said and done, too. So this first bit is 
this idea of truth, that in a marriage and in this journey together, that the couple walks in complete light. They do not walk in darkness. And there's never a time um, when they should, in any sense, sort of put the blinders on to what the truth is in life or in their relationships or with kids. You know, mom and dads don't, um, hopefully, there was one in my life, the uh, one thing that was made very clear very early on is that mom did not ever keep anything from dad and dad did not ever keep anything from mom. And that was always a frightening thing when you were a child. To know that you couldn't get one or the other, they were so united that you you couldn't pull the wool over the other one's eye by going to mom or by going to dad. That, and it was a beautiful thing to know as a child. There's nothing more comforting to know than your mother and your father share every single thing about your life. That there's no escaping the fact that mom and dad are really one, that they are united. And that's the way a married couple needs to be. They need to live in that truth. They need to live in the faith. If they don't, they're just Protestants. You know, they're heretics, schismatics, or whatever you want to call them. As soon as they start violating that truth that is in life. So it's the, whether it's the truth of the faith or the truth of what you want to eat for dinner, whatever it is, they live in this world of truth. And obviously, that truth is also... Might as well put this up here now, too. What are the three goods of marriage? Boy, if I don't get this... Dr. Janislavski, if I don't get this answered here... We're going to have to revamp the entire theology department here in Christendom. What are the three goods of marriage? Joe? Uh, some That's a part of it, but not in terms of the three goods of marriage. Do, do you get these in class? Um, uh, unitive love between the spouses and the procreation and education of children. Close, that's two of them. So you've got permanence, fidelity, and procreation. Okay, those are, the, those are the three traditional goods of marriage. Permanence, fidelity, and procreation. So, this first one, this first good comes from and is spoken of in this vow to be true. Alright, that there's that complete faithfulness to the other one. All right. So, we move along to, we should probably do honor next. Because it'll make a little now, honoring someone, when you do honor somebody, you have received something from them. They have done something that merits your returning an attention to them. In, in many ways, I think we can say, it's an attention, it's also a hope. That when I honor someone, they give me great hope because I honor them because they've done something good. And I now have this tremendous amount of hope that they will continue to do good things. That it builds up, in a sense, my faith in them. So this honoring, we're going to say, is hope. And... Right, I'm going to cancel this. That was bad. Let's say this truth is uh, permanent. That should be still. Because the truth doesn't change. Truth is that very fixed idea. I don't know what I was thinking. I thought that was wrong when I was writing it down. However, the hope, which will delegate to the Son, the Son who on the cross gives us hope of redemption, who saved us by his act, his loving act, 
Now we have this hope of salvation. Our own salvation is actually something that we can attain based on this hope that the Son gives us. So when the couple makes this promise, not only to be true, but also to honor, this is this tremendous idea that I know that if I am faithful to God and His commandments, that I can, in fact, enter the gates of heaven. Well, the same thing is true in the marriage, that when I honor, which is to say, when I give back to the person that I love because they have loved me, I now have this tremendous hope that I will always receive from them truth and love and joy and peace and all these other things. In the same way that when we gaze upon a cross, we should see that just brilliant, brilliant ray of light of hope that comes from Christ dying for our sins, that I'm going to be completely faithful to that person because I know that my fidelity is always being returned. And when my, the fidelity is returned to me, it just increases my hope. I want to honor them all the more. This is why men buy flowers for women and why dinner is really sometimes really nice on the table with a couple of candles and why clothes are neatly folded. And why diamonds are, you know, every anniversary is diamond. My sister-in-law likes to say there's no paper anniversaries for it. They'll all be done. So this idea of honoring and giving, once again, it's just a re-gift of yourself. So when, remember this. It's very simple. This offering is just a gift. It's just a gift of yourself. And you're not giving that gift simply on the day that you get married, but rather you're constantly giving that gift of yourself to your spouse. That's the way marriage works. Now we do love, which will obviously translate right into our beautiful charity, right into the Holy Spirit, and, whoops, then we will have procreation. This gift of love, this promise of love, actually becomes physically manifested when a husband and a wife, in that beautiful act of love, uh, when God decides to show up and everything works out, the new life is actually created from the love that they promise to have for one another on the day of their marriage. And so this love, in its highest mm, material sense, is going to come in the form of a child. So you can, in many ways you can say that uh, a child born to a married couple is, is really just an incarnation of their love. I mean, it's a beautiful way to look at it. But that's the very highest point of it. But that love is also shown because even though the husband left the socks on the floor, she decides to pick them up anyway. Or even though the wife, as my brother had just been married, this, um, they were moving, he was moving from his house into the house that they bought. And they had an outdoor garage area it had you know it was it was short and he had his bikes on top of his car and so he I don't know why he wasn't driving but he got out of the car took a bunch of stuff out of the car and his wife said okay honey I'll put the car in the garage and he said now honey be very careful don't go into the garage with the car because the bikes are on the roof and she says what do you think I am some sort of idiot of course I just saw the bikes on the roof I know they're going to hit the thing and I'm not going to do it just relax it's like, okay, honey. So he turns around, and he did bang, crash right into the garage. Just, you know, but you know what? He loves her anyway. He loves her anyway, regardless of the fact that she yelled at him for warning her about this and then did the exact thing she was yelling at him because she was probably so ticked off about the fact that he had 
you know, reminded her about this that she forgot that she shouldn't run the bicycles into the garage. Nonetheless, so the, the love is always going to be present, right? As long as, and let's remember this, as long as the truth is present, because you won't have this love without this truth, and you probably won't have this love without this honor. In the same way that you have faith and hope and love, in the end there is love, but right now we need this faith and this hope. So where is this journey going? Because we just haven't even gotten started. We're just on day one. Well, here it is. That in this intervening time between the day you take the vows, so Gracie and I took vows today, very happy, going on our honeymoon tomorrow, after class, and at one point one of us will die. We don't know if that will be tomorrow. Hopefully not on our honeymoon. Uh, it will be in a lot of years, many years of happy life. There is this great time period where we're living, as the prayer says, in this valley of tears. And we're living in a world that is a sinful world. And we both acknowledge, every day when we go to Mass together, that we are, in fact, sinners. And because of that, this ideal is beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. But chances are that at one point in time, one of us will violate one of these promises that we have made. Which is why when we make the promise, we make the promise in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health. Those are two different things, good times and bad, in sickness and in health. The good times and bad is sort of the, um, if you're parking back to your doctrine one-on-one days, that's kind of the odd extra. That's when the world around us is either great or it's miserable. And we're not letting that affect that which we have promised. So no matter what is happening in the world around us, if I lose my job, if uh, the market goes crashing and we lose some money, if, some, if one of our cars gets totaled, whatever it might be, our being true and loving and honoring is always going to be a part of our life. And then the sickness and the health, that's more of that personal odd interest that is inside of us. So whether I'm, I'm well or not, I'm still going to be true to you and love you and honor you. And whether you're well or not, I'm still going to be true to you and love you and honor you. You know, Mr. Janislawski didn't say, see you later, because he couldn't do much when his back went out last year. You know, he was sick. But she didn't say, well, <laughs> I've got you out now, honey. I will, you know, it was nice knowing you. Here are the kids, I'm leaving. Of course she's not going to do that. Because she promised to be true and honor and love him all the days of life. Okay. Now, so that's sort of the basis for our journey, and that's what needs to be going on while a couple is married. Now we get to the real journey aspect of this. And that comes right here. That is until death. So the journey of a married couple is an interesting one. That on the day that two people get married... As we all know, God has been very clear. Christ was very clear. Pick up your cross and follow me. And this is what all Christians are called to do. On the day that some, two people get married, you know what happens, Crazy and I, today we got married, we now have the same cross. We now have the same cross. And then we recognize that marriage for us, although it has these wonderful gifts of permanence and fidelity and procreation, Although it has contains these wonderful gifts and these wonderful ends, that really the ultimate end of our marriage 
is to get to heaven. And we also recognize that if I die first, you know what? We're not married anymore. She's done her job, hopefully. You done your job? Give me that. All right. That the idea of the marriage, it's almost as if God is saying, you know what? Father Geek, you know what? It's better for you to be married to Grace because with Grace, you'll actually be able to get to heaven more easily than you would on your own. That this companion is not simply a companion for this life. This companion is a companion for this life so that you can reach successfully the next life. That's the real journey of a married couple. That all takes form of permanence and fidelity and procreation. It takes the form of faith and hope and love and truth and honor and love. It takes the form of good times and bad and sickness and in health. But all those things, being a part of God's divine plan, are sort of assembled in a package in such a way that by being true here, make sure that I'm true there on the cross. Make sure that we are, in fact, carrying our crosses. And that the love of a married couple, hopefully, is going to be a very joyful thing. Even living in this world of sin, marriage is a very joyful thing. One of the reasons it's joyful, the reason it should be most joyful, is that the two people are side by side trying to get to heaven. And that by the gifts God has given them in this sacrament, they are much more likely to make it. You know, it's a lot easier to pick up something with two people than it is with one person. And to pick up a cross and carry it, you know, even Christ... Where is it? saying, you know what, we're carrying this cross together. We're now carrying the single Christ cross, and that cross is, and the carrying of it is what we are going to do in our lives. And it actually can be a very pleasant thing. That the carrying of the cross actually becomes almost a joyful thing. Because you're now, when you suffer, you do not suffer alone. You're suffering mutually. So when, a, when Grace gets sick, when she's really pregnant, she can't do anything but waddle around. You know what? I'm suffering with her. I'm suffering with her. And uh, the last thing I want is for her to be injured. When she's hurt, when she's in pain, I'm in pain. There's a mutual suffering that goes on. When she gives birth to that baby, you know what? I'm going to be a lot happier than I am when some other lady in the next room is giving birth to a baby. I'll be happy for the other lady, but nothing like I will be for Grace when I see the love and the joy that comes from her heart when she's holding our baby in her arms. So the suffering is lessened, in a sense, because it's mutual. The pain of it, at least, is lessened. But the joy is amplified, because now we're celebrating a joy together. And so this is really what marriage and this spiritual journey of marriage entails. It means that I can walk side by side with somebody else whom I have given myself to, and a promise to be true, to honor, to love them all the days of my life, for better, for worse, for sickness and health. And I, by knowing that, I am completely comforted. If this is your call, of course, to marriage. Then I'm completely comforted by the thought that that's what God is calling me to do. And that my journey is not just because, you know what, she's really good looking. 
or because he has a lot of money, or because he's really smart, or because my mom thinks he'd be a great addition to our family, but rather because this is someone with whom I can walk side by side every day, trying to get much, much closer to the cross. That we, carrying this cross together, are going to, in a way that is impossible for me in any other vocation, we are going to actually live this vocation to carry this cross as one person until God calls one of us to heaven. And that is the ultimate goal of our marriage. It's through permanent fiddling procreation. It's through my faithfulness, my love, and our children, and our family. It's through all of this that I'm going to undertake this journey. But the ultimate end of my journey is a very, very simple one. It's to love and honor and be true to my wife so much that when the time comes and God ends and dissolves our marriage, I'm going to heaven because of it. And that she is going to do the same thing. That my whole focus and energy in, in my love and in my truth and in my honor is to make sure that she is going to heaven. That's what I am trying to do. That's how much I love her. It doesn't matter the sacrifice I need to make in order to do that, but that is, that's what my love entails. That's the form my love takes, is to really do everything I can. Of course we want everyone to get to heaven, but in a marriage between the spouses, that really is that primary goal that's carried out in a very natural way. And so you're, you're reaching to that supernatural end of life to get to heaven through very natural ways, through crying babies and changing diapers and all these other things. These things aren't problems in a marriage. These things should be joys in a marriage. These are all opportunities to come to a better, further distance, I should say, along the journey. That that's what God provides for us. And that's why Christ did, in fact, elevate this from a totally natural act to the supernatural act. So the marriage is now something supernatural that was given to us. And in doing so, God has made marriage, in fact, a, a true joy. And despite what people tell you around the world right now, that is what marriage ought to be and ought to be considered, is a true joy. A suffering at time? Yes, of course. It's the world of pain. We're going to suffer in it. But now you can suffer together. Joy amplified. Suffering diminished. That all this directed in a very, very beautiful, beautiful way. In a very secure way, secure environment, loving family. It's a beautiful thing. So that's really the journey of marriage. And that's really all I have to say about it. So that spiritually, uh, I guess I should mention one more thing. Do we have a little time left? It's gone for three minutes. I find that hard to believe. I was mostly put out early. Um, in terms of spirituality in your marriage, I guess I really didn't discuss that. The husband and the wife are separate, right? Drawing time. Great stuff. Let's put this right up here. So we can understand this. So you have God up here. You've got Pauline here. You've got Gracie here. Right. Well, Grace has a relationship to God. I have a relationship to God. I have a relationship to Grace, and she has one to me. Now, Gracie and I also will develop, on the day we get married, a third relationship, which is the, relation, the spiritual relationship of our union with God. Now, that is not to say that this gets erased 
Absolutely, positively not. Grace will always have her relationship with God. And I will always, of course, have my relationship with God. But it's very, you need to be very careful to attend to not just my relationship with God, and not just her relationship with God, but our relationship with God. So that in order to truly live out these vows, to be true and to be honest and be loving, we need the grace that comes from this relationship with God. And if you want to do this, what do you want to name our first kid? Don't tell me you haven't thought about this, Grace, because I'm sure she has. Quick, honey. <laughs> Either one. Girl. A girl? Yeah. Oh, there's a lot of girl names. <laughs> <laughs> now, you're going to see a little communication in marriage now. <laughs> honey, any name you like would be good for me. Well, the same name. Lily? Liliana? That's my niece's name, actually. So, I, we can do this. Just to kind of make it a little bigger. So, Grace and I love each other so much, and we have a relationship with God, that a third person is actually formed. And I'll have a relationship and Grace will have a relationship with him. This is our child. So this is the man, this is kind of pictorially the manifestation of what happens when Grace and I have a solid relationship to God that this new life is created. But my point being that this relationship that Grace and I have with God needs to be attended to. So we do need to pray together. But we also need to pray apart. This is why I tell young couples around Christendom, this is kind of tangential, but uh, this is why I tell couples around Christendom that you have to be very careful praying together because when you do pray together, you begin in some ways to form this mutual relationship. And let me tell you, this is a lot more powerful than any physical relationship that you might form. And then when you form this, then the physical is going to want to come together with the spiritual. So it is actually a little dangerous before you're married to spend too much time and effort on this type of relationship with God, as it would be to spend too much time with your own physical relationship. See what I mean? So, anyway, that's tangential, but I thought I'd get it out there in the public for a little bit while I have my diagram up on the board. So Grace and I, we need to make sure that we do attend Mass together. We do need to make sure that we do pray, make some holy hours together. We need to make sure that we pray in the evening or at night before we're going to bed together so that we can establish it's very, just really rooted. So look at all the fonts of grace. I've got this one. I've got this one. I've got this one. And then we can also receive grace by how we attend to this relationship and this relationship. So marriage provides, in this spiritual journey that we're undertaking, marriage provides all these avenues of grace. All these avenues of grace. And all they do is they just help us to accomplish that what we set out to do from the day that we took our vows. So when we take these things and we make these promises, we can rest assured that God is going to give us all the graces needed to carry them out faithfully. So I don't care if you're a priest or a nun or you're married, God is going to provide you all the grace you need to fulfill your vocation properly in the way that He called you to fulfill it. But only if you undertake the task of actually making the prayers and receiving the sacraments and doing all these things. So that's it. That's all I have to say now for sure. I can't think of anything else. I can think of a lot more, but I don't think I have any more questions. And I, do you have any questions? Yes. Um, you said that, um, that like, at, at death, like, um, the marriage like ends, but the, the, um, the goal was to 
was to uh, bring the um, spouses to, to re reach heaven. Like after death, is there still um, a duty that one of the spouses has to play a part for still praying for the person's soul? Absolutely. So they, so they mean that they get to heaven. Unless, I, in, until, unless until one of them is canonized, the one that's dead is canonized, yes. <laughs> so the duty doesn't end necessarily at death. It is still the, the duty of prayer, correct. No more preguntas? No mods? All right, very well. I guess you can go eat some pizza or something. Do you have pizza enough for all these people? It's not here yet. Oh, it's not here yet? So it would be a great time for a few more questions. It would be a great time for a few more questions since we're waiting for a pizza. Well, I don't even know what time it is. That's 40 minutes, so that's pretty good. Can you tell us more about honor? Yeah, I can tell you more about honor. Now, honor is, as I said before... Um, I will always love grace and I'll always be true to grace that does not mean that I'll always honor grace necessarily that honor in many ways it means that she needs to be worthy of it you can't honor somebody when they're not worthy of that honor now, you can certainly neglect somebody. You can certainly neglect somebody when they are. We're, we're, we ought to give honor and glory to God at all times, right? Well, he's always worthy of our honor. As human beings, we're not necessarily always worthy. So the first thing is to make sure, as a married couple, that I am worthy of somebody's honor. And to never neglect them when they are do that. Because this is, when you know, marriages do break down unfortunately. And one of the reasons, one of the main reasons they break down is because things are taken for granted. So of course I love you and of course I'm true to you, honey. I've, I've always done that. Well, you haven't necessarily told me that and you haven't done anything for me and you missed my birthday and you stayed out late drinking with those idiots over Christendom. So why, where's the honor there? The honor is actually that, that kind of practical, actual showing of appreciation for the love that she has given to me. So it isn't love, it's different than that. And all, too often that can be neglected, and you know what? That really hurts. People can take it for a little while, but uh, it does begin to hurt that you are actively loving somebody, and you get no response out of them. That they never just stop to say, thank you. You know, thank you is, in many ways is the greatest form of honor. And it's very neglected uh, in society. And it could be from opening a door for somebody or making somebody a meal or helping somebody with a paper. And there's a million ways to, to show that honor. And so it's me submitting myself, of course, because the person being honored is higher than the person doing the honoring. Right? So honor means that I submit myself freely to that other person. So if I'm honoring Grace because she's been such a good wife to me and been so kind and loving to me, I'm actually allowing myself to be in some ways submitted because I'm acknowledging her greatness in one way or, one way or shape or form or whatever it might be. So that's what honor entails. It's my being willing to submit myself in a, in a beautiful and humble way to 
Nice balance. My wife. Any questions? You guys are just dying for pizza and you can't get it. Mm-hmm. Um, not to go off on a tangent, Father, but when you're talking, when you say that, um, I like that analogy of you know, like bearing the cross together mm-hmm. when a couple gets married. Is that something to keep in mind when you go into a dating relationship when you're dating? Um, obviously, you're not married, that's, but there's that potential mm-hmm. of helping. You want to help each other out, but how far do you go with helping the other bear their cross or their troubles. It's, should there be a line of, this is my responsibilities, and that those are his, or are we, do we want to help each other in every single thing? Well, there's very good question. And there are very, did anyone get the question? Did you get it back there, Lindsay? Is it loud? That there are certain things that you you want to do, and both, both spiritually and physically. So if I had a really, you know, when Grace and I began dating a few years back, but before we got engaged, she decided to be, something she'd like to do would be to do my laundry for me. Um, which was fine. I was happy to sacrifice for her and allow her to do my laundry. Uh, which would be okay. You know, and we sort of have some standard things, like we don't move in together yet until we get married. You know, obviously we don't have a physical relation until we get married. Uh, we're not going to join our bank accounts until we get married. So there are certain things where you know you've You've really united yourself in a way that is inappropriate to your current state in life. Spiritually, like I say, you have to be you have to be careful because what the reason I say you need to take care is not so much because you're going to establish this this very profound relationship, this unified profound relationship with God. Certainly, it's never going to overtake these guys. But what that does is this relationship right here. If this doesn't have this line, it's only going to grow so strong, my relationship with grace. Even though we're both Christians and Catholics and dedicated to God, uh, this line is only going to be so so strong. However, when it's now buttressed and firmed up with this thing, then this relationship really becomes a powerhouse. And it's obviously the married relationship is the strongest relationship you'll ever have. It's superior to that relationship which you will ever have with your children. So this relationship is always more important than my relationship with my children because my children come from this relationship that I have with grace. So the reason I have, I say you have to take a little bit of care in establishing a relationship like this is because this will, be, will begin to grow even without the sacrament. And when that does begin to grow, then the temptation for this relationship in all its ways to grow, really becomes much harder to avoid. And so we could be completely chaste, living a nice life, but if we start praying too much together, it actually, it's ironic, but true, it actually can make it much more hard to be chaste. And it puts us in grave in a graver danger of sins because our desire which is a good thing and is grounded in love, is going to become so strong with the addition of God that it is going to pull us together. And that's why there has to be some boundaries and limits in a relationship in order for it to be healthy until you actually do get married. So what does that mean? Does that mean we sit at Mass every day together? I'd say no, you don't. I'd say that's a, it's a really profound thing. You know, a couple times a week, sure. You know, certainly when the family's there, sure. 
Do we do a holy hour next to each other? No, of course not. You don't do it. You're, you're work, you need to work on this relationship as a couple, not this one. I mean, we all, every friendship should have some element of a relationship with God that's united to those two, that brings us together. So you say, you say a rosary with your friends, um, you say grace with your friends and with your family. I mean, there is some element of this extra relationship in any friendship, which is perfectly fine and adequate, which is perfectly fine. So saying a rosary together now and then, once or twice a week, fine. No problem with that. It's just that you don't want to you don't want to overload it because it can actually. Um, I, I guess similarly, it would be almost like doing things in a, in the physical side of the relationship, which is inappropriate. That it's really not appropriate to a friendship to spend that much time united together in prayer, because you're really, as I say, putting yourself in potential danger of uniting yourself in ways that you're not allowed to unite yourself. So they're, they're both kind of dangerous. Does that answer your question? Yes, thank you, Mom. Sure. Yes? Like, I know there's no marriage in heaven, mm-hmm. but since in marriage um, your spouse is helping you very significantly in your spiritual journey to heaven, I guess, I mean, does that... I know, it hurts, doesn't it? it yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. Bit. Like, how does yeah. it tie in? Um, I guess? The way it ties in is that here on Earth, we are in a marriage, for instance. You're very closely united to one person, and you have intimate knowledge of that person. So I have intimate knowledge of grace that I don't have with anybody else, and that obviously forms a very, very firm and tight bond. You cannot put this, by the way, on Chris and iTunes.edu because if these little guys get out and I'm saying things like that, they're not going to know what I'm talking about. Anyway, um, so from our level here in this world, we think it would be awful to get to heaven and not somehow have the strength of that relationship. Well, in heaven, you'll have a stronger relationship. So I died. Grace and I, we were married for, well, I'm a lot older than she is, so not that long. Like 40 years, maybe. And we had this wonderful relationship. Beautiful. Strong, powerful, very faithful, very truthful, very just honoring and loving all the days of our life. We did it. We had a beautiful marriage. Well, when we get to heaven, because of the beatific vision, my relationship with anybody in heaven is going to be, I don't want to say infinitely, but many, many times more powerful than my relationship with her was on this earth. Because of the fact there's no longer any sin, there's no longer temptation, and everything has been cured, and I've been fully realized in the beatific vision. So for that reason, Christ is very clear that there's no heaven in marriage. It's not necessary to have heaven in marriage. But, so, right now we lament this a little bit. In heaven, we won't notice it. We won't notice it because we will have a perfect relationship with God, of course, and then also a perfect relationship with everybody else. So you could say we, in some ways, will be married to everyone, but in an even higher level because we will have this wonderful intimate knowledge of the truth and you know you're not going to care what my sins were like all that's gone none of that's going to matter I think I heard someone said that before you're almost married to everyone yeah so that's just our point of view that makes it look a little depressing but yes what if one of those poses is I don't know what is more spiritually of course well that's always going to be the case so we'll take grace here and we'll take something here 
and here's God, and here's our relationship. So, let's say her relationship, the bandwidth of her relationship with God is like this, and the bandwidth of my relationship with God is like this, much smaller bandwidth. That is always going to be the case, okay? There's always going to be some disparity in who has a stronger relationship to God. Now, when it's very, very large, like say Grace's is like this, <laughs> and mine's just this little itty bitty line, like a sense that I don't have much of one, it is going to affect our ability to establish this relationship. Okay? So in this, we need the balance of both people. We need some kind of balance, if you will, for both people. So two holier two people that are concerned with their holiness and have active prayer lives, they're going to be able to establish a much better relationship to God together because of that. You are in some ways limited to the smaller of the two relationships because I just you can't add them together. It's the one thing that doesn't work. It takes it's killing your free will when you do that. You know, God can't do that. It can only work with as much as you're willing to give. So, however much the least person is willing to give, that's going to be sort of the size, if you will, of this relate of this united relationship. Does that make sense? So it can be very difficult when one spouse uh, doesn't want to do it and doesn't have an interest in that. It can make for a very difficult task. I'll start praying more, please. Any more? Yes? Um, you mentioned uh, actually talking about the valley of tears and that, mm-hmm. um, the, that sometimes spouses can't live up to their vows. Um, what's the role of forgiveness in a relationship when that Forgiveness, relation, um, this is actually a whole talk in and of itself, but I'll just do a little bit of a talk until the pizza comes. Marriage, uh, when Christ died on the cross, as the marriage of Christ to the church. The precursor to Christ actually dying on the cross is his willingness to forgive us. And um, the first thing he says on the cross is forgive the Father who know what they do. So, forgiveness in a marriage almost needs to come. It needs to be, on the day you get married, it's almost sort of a uh, carte blanche, across the board, universal, I'm forgiving you today for every single thing you're ever going to do to me over the next 50 years. Kind of idea. If If that forgiveness is not there, it's a complete, utter, total disaster. In the same way that the cross, without forgiveness, is not going to exist. So if you don't truly have a sense of forgiveness about you when you get married and a willingness to forgive, then your marriage is doomed completely. Absolutely, completely doomed from the beginning. So forgiveness is very important because it is going to have to happen multiple times. So if we say that the event of the cross is like the day you get married, however, Christ didn't just say, okay, that's it. He provided us with the sacrament of confession so that we could always live up to the cross, and the cross could continue working, of course, um, via the Last Supper. Uh, forgiveness of sins all takes place, certainly Pentecost, right there. We're, all, we're living in that, and we share in that. Well, the same thing's true of the marriage relationship. That you should be able to harken back to the day you got married and realize that my state of mind on this day is that everything, I can forgive anything. I'm willing to forgive anything. There should be very... In it, you know, if you're doing that, there's not going to be anything big to forgive your entire life. You just won't sin. So it's critical.
to it's critical to the marriage at the very beginning of the marriage, and then obviously the practice of it throughout. Because you're stuck, you're totally stuck if there's no forgiveness, or if one of them commits a sin against the Holy Spirit and doesn't doesn't seek forgiveness. That's the other major problem. So that your your hands are tight, and you can't really forgive them, even though you want to. So if I've done something wrong, Gracie, if I don't go up and actually say, Grace, I'm sorry, forgive me, and seek her forgiveness, then she can't give it to me. Same thing with God. If we don't go to confession, well, you can't be forgiven for it. So you need both of those aspects, the willingness and the humility to be forgiven and seek forgiveness, and obviously the humility to always, in love, forgive the person that you're married to, so you can get the thing back on track. So when he buys pulp orange juice instead of pulp-free orange juice, you know that it's not the end of the relationship. 